Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me James Gillingham. Hello, James. Hello, Stuart. And how are you on this fine morning? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, good all man. is good. Good man. Now, do you want to tell us what film we're? What's the name of the film we're uh, we're coming together to talk about? Yep, we're talking about uh, a film called High Tide. Um, which uh, I directed with my colleague Jimmy Hay, and uh, as we speak today, we're just uh, one day away from the premiere, which is uh, which is all a bit exciting. I imagine it is. I imagine it is. So, so what? Do you want to give us a brief synopsis of what what that film's about? Sure. Yeah, High Tide is the story of twenty four hours in the life of a mother uh, called Bethan and her teenage son called Josh. Um, everything seems relatively normal as the film begins. Um, she drops him off at school, um, <clears throat> but then thinks better of it and actually goes into the school and gets him out and says, you've got to spend the day with me. Um, Josh, her son, doesn't understand what's going on. He thinks his mother is acting very strangely. And she drives them off to uh, a place called Gower in South Wales, uh, which is just outside Swansea. And they spend the day together, and during that day, various things are revealed that that, uh, that things are not as they should be. And uh, Bethan is trying to to mend what seems to be quite a broken relationship with her son. And it's only at the end you find out why she's doing that. Okay, okay. Now we don't want any spoilers because obviously it's a big it's a big build up through, through the yeah. film. Um, but. You, you just said there you got. I mean, we're talking on the. Um, let me just get. I can't remember what date it is. We're talking on Thursday, the twenty sixth of February, and you're saying your premiere is Friday, the twenty seventh. That's right. We premiere tomorrow night in Swansea, um, which is where the sort of the production was based uh, for for the shoot. Um, pretty much, uh, myself and Jimmy are the only non Welsh people. Um, associated with the production, so the entire crew and the cast are all Welsh, 
Swansea was very good to us as a location, and uh, it felt right that we had the had the premiere there. So that's happening tomorrow night. So, so this is the podcast though, and it's likely to go out after your premiere. Yep. Um, where, where else can people see that? Where else will people be able to catch the movie after the premiere? Um, throughout South Wales, to begin with, uh, Odin and View in uh, in Swansea in Cardiff, um, Real Cinemas in Port Talbot, and, and then beyond that into Bristol, and then a further release will depend on uh, how many people go and see it in its uh, in its initial weeks. Uh, sure. So uh, yeah, starting in South Wales and building from there is the plan. Okay, okay. Now, um, what what inspired the story that you've got? I mean, like you say, you're 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 the English people on a very Welsh film. Not that the story is particularly specifically Welsh, but obviously it's all very Welsh based. So where where did the idea come from for this for this script? Um, Perry well, at the time, um, Jimmy, my colleague, was living in Wales. Um, okay, spent four years in Swansea. Um, so it's an area he knew well. Um, I went down to see him for a, a weekend of uh, recreation, um, and we went for a walk along the, the coastline there. Yeah. It was just so incredibly beautiful. And you think, you know, as sort of uh, as filmmakers, we thought, well, you know, has anyone shot a film here? And with a bit of research, the answer was no, not really. And then the next question was, well, why doesn't someone shoot a film here? And then the next question is, well, why don't we shoot a film here? Um, so it really was the landscape that inspired the story to begin with. Um, the actual sort of uh, interplay between the son and, and the mother that, that forms the basis of the film um, was a story that's been kicking around in notebooks for a while. But it was only really when we saw the location that the story seemed to sort of, you know, come to life. And we thought, well, this 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 could work. This this could be the perfect uh, the perfect place to tell this story. So the landscape is very much a part of the a film. It's not a coincidence that they go to this place. It's sort of it's open. And it's uh, it's beautiful in contrast to the earlier scenes in the town, which are very kind of claustrophobic and uh, very urban. It's it's the landscape that gives them the freedom they need to actually speak to each other properly for for the first time in years. So, so the story um, so the story goes. I mean, it's it's interesting that that, that you responded so 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 enthusiastically to the to the to the environment. Yeah. Because I think I think as a I mean I've I've had some experiences where I've wrote about places based on you know what you could read about it. And then, and then when you go there, the script that you've got can really come alive. I mean, obviously, plenty of people write sci-fi stuff, and yeah. they've, they've not been to the moon, and they seem to pull it off. <laughs> but, but there is something about when you're writing about real places that when you actually go, when you actually can experience, and obviously, like you say, your co-writer had spent six years there, so therefore it was, it was, it was almost part of him anyway. Yeah. Way, you know, that, that, that expertise that you bring. But... What what is it do you think about about environments that that sort of kind of can help the writer when trying to make a movie? I just think you know good good writing is based on is based on experience. It's just it's just living the things you're writing about, and you know I, a landscape like that is so evocative. It just it just stirs the emotion, um, and it, you know I live in London. Jim, Jimmy now lives in in Bristol, so we're both sort of quite you know, have an urban sort of sensibility. But when, yeah, when you get into the sort of landscape, just things change. You think differently. There's space, there's time, the air's fresher. And uh, to experience that, you know, just on a, on a Saturday walk um, was enough to think, well, you know what, this, there's, there's something here. There's, there's a space here that, 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 that isn't afforded to you in a kind of urban, urban context. And there's time to talk and think and breathe. And, and all those things are really important in the film. Now, in, 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 the, in the storytelling, 
yeah. were in the script writing stage. What what was um, now? You say you say that this the, the the shell of this story was was roaming around notebooks for a while, and yeah. then, and you, like you say the the environment you 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 discovered was like here's the perfect match for this. What yeah. when you were developing that into a screenplay, then what was what was some of the hardest challenges for you to resolve? I, I think the challenges uh, bringing it to a screenplay is the fact that you've got. We decided very early on that it was twenty four hours, and that is both really liberating because you don't need to sort of really worry about uh, multiple locations or uh, or subplots or backstories. You know, the the intensity of the storytelling is focused on on that that one period of time. Yeah. But then, of course, you've got to you've got to create a narrative that sustains. You know, and and, and most people's you know everyday twenty four hours contain moments of. Uh, of interest, but also contain moments that are quite sort of everyday and, and uh, straightforward. So, I think as a writer, we had to, I had to try and create a, a story world in which, in which those moments where they were just sort of walking and talking to each other, they're still compelling, even though the subjects that they're talking about are not necessarily the most dramatic or the most significant. Um, but it, it's still watchable for an audience. These people still had to live. The characters had to had to exist and be watchable and interesting, even if they weren't doing the most sort of, uh, you know, necessarily exciting things throughout the narrative. So that, that was a challenge. And I think, you know, I think we got it right in the end, but um, that was difficult along the way. Yeah. And I think, I think you're, you, the, the, what the ending you build to works so much better when it is framed within a yeah. kind of single day rather than because cinema time obviously allows us to go from day to day without even thinking about it, doesn't it? Doesn't yeah. yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Right then. So, um, making this movie, I mean, you've got in 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 the star and role of mother, you've got yeah. a very recognisable face from uh, yeah. Gavin and Stacey, Melanie Walters, mm-hmm. and um, in the in the son role, Josh, you've got an actor called Sam Davis, and I I genuinely felt watching him like I was watching like a star is born I thought he was a really really talented actor yeah we're not going to be able to afford him for much longer <laughs> try and sign him up for another three projects while yeah. we can yeah Sam is Sam is immensely talented he's also just a lovely guy yeah um but he's so kind of self-effacing and, and, and modest he had a decent amount of experience on his CV mm. I mean when he came into the audition room we knew nothing about him um, and it was just this sort of little chap there with his granddad, and we thought, oh gosh, well, we'll audition him because he's turned up, but really he seems a bit kind of a bit too meek. Yeah. But when he, when he performed, he was he was stunning. And then we found out that he'd been in Doctor Who and Casualty. He'd been in a, a Welsh language soap opera uh, as a regular character. So you know, he's 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 served his apprenticeship. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think in this film, it really allows him to show you know the full range of what he can do. You know, from from grumpy teenager to to really kind of uh, you know sensitive and intelligent adult by the end of the story, and as much as it's Bethan's story, you know Melanie Walters' character, the film is also about about how Josh grows up with the information that he's given and how he changes. And Sam played that brilliantly; he really is. I mean, we we are we are hugely impressed with uh, with what he did, and uh, feel very lucky that uh, that we got him. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think because because all the knowledge is with the mother character. All the change, in a way, happens with him, doesn't it? It's kind of like he he has an initial. This is my standpoint, and then as as information becomes more available and the experiences of the day come across him, we we learn. I think I feel like we learn more about him than her. There's there's obviously the ending, which is the big the big payoff for the mother, but mm-hmm. but I think I think that there's 
there's certainly um, he's the one that has to grow. He's like the audience. He's in the audience position, I guess. I think that's true, and I, I think you know it's, it, it takes an actor of Sam's quality to to portray that journey. I mean, it's only ninety minutes. It's not. A, it's not a, a huge amount of screen time to sort of to get that progression right. But uh, mm. I think he nails it. I really do. I think it's uh, incredibly affecting. But yeah, when you see him in the in the final scenes, he's 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 grown up. He's changed, and uh, yeah, I mean that's that's affecting from a affecting from a storytelling point of view, but also from a, an acting performance. It's a it's a real achievement, and uh, yeah, yeah we're, we're massive fans of Sam Davis. Definitely. No, no, well done, well done. No, I'm glad uh, glad I was able. To, I mean, I must admit, I had a look on his uh, IMDb, and you can see he's been in a few. He's been in a couple of films and stuff already. So he's got he's been he is, he has been getting his chops, and you can see that. Yeah, he turned down a. a, a a Hollywood role, a very small Hollywood role, yeah. to do High Tide, which we were delighted about. Um, I, mean, I think it was a, a very, you know, relatively minor part, but it would have been going to America. But his dad counselled him to say, "No, do this one. Mm. You know, you're on screen in, in every scene. It's a good part. You know, more will come of it." So, um, yeah, as I say, we're really, really glad he uh, he chose to. And how did you get? How did Melanie Walters get involved? And obviously, like she's. Um... Uh, one of the characters' mothers, isn't she? When, when she yeah. returns to Wales, so she's she's quite the well-known actress these days. She is. So she's she's very she's very well known in the UK generally, obviously, but particularly in South Wales. Um, mm. She's she's a very sort of a big name. But it was it was through our casting director, really. Um, uh, you know, the, the big the big jump forward for this project was getting a casting director on yeah. board. And in terms of advice for other filmmakers, I would say that is you know once your script is is set then then hawk it around get a get a casting director interested and we were very lucky that we got someone who was was very good and uh, believed in the project at a time when we didn't really have a budget particularly we didn't really know quite how we were going to get to a production stage but uh, the casting director um Bryony Barnett uh, changed everything for us and uh, it was through her hard work that um we managed to audition Eleni and um she was fabulous and um and we got it that way, so yeah, it was. We were delighted that she agreed to do it. What what, do, what is it you think the casting director brings to the film that the film on its own doesn't? I just think it's access to people. I just think um, the way the industry works, um, you, you've got to you, you have to be seen to be plausible as filmmakers. You've got to be taken seriously, and you know you can get a really good script, and you can probably get it to agents, and you, they may or may not get read, and that may or may not get passed on to their clients. But when you've got a casting director attached, it's just it's just the way the industry works, and uh, actors want good scripts. And one thing we learned quite early on is that that people who you thought would never ever agree to be in a in a low budget indie film will actually read a script and and express interest if if the writing is good. And the casting director opens those doors. Simply, you know, just just uh, knocking on doors with a couple of shorts and your, and, and your, and your on your CV is unlikely to to get you to to uh, to the actors that you need. So the casting director very much makes that process much easier. And um, she did a, a brilliant job for us. It's a funny side of film, isn't it? That kind of it's it's almost like it's it's um, it's a combination of sort of accepted dogma or almost like a conservatism to you know this is how it's done and therefore if a film does all these things then we'll believe it's plausible if it's trying to do it any other way then we're kind of we're going to yeah, be a bit nervous and, and i think and i think some of those <coughs> accepted dogmas you can ignore I, I think there's a certain amount i mean we've, we've come a long way through through ignorance really you know, <laughs> by making mistakes and, and upsetting people by doing things the wrong way mm. but i think there are there are moments 
in the pre-production process that absolutely do do need to be uh, carried out in in the way that the industry you know expects. Because if you don't do that, you just you're just not taken seriously. And and getting a script through an agent to the to the desk of a, an actor requires a casting director. It's very very hard to do it any other way. And do you, do you still as 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 directors? Do you still? I mean. Do you still want to be able to sort of say yes or no, as it were? Because obviously you, you're still going to have to direct these people, aren't you? Yeah. Um, I mean, you, there's a certain pragmatism has to, you know, has to apply. Um, I think if if everything was equal, you'd sort of uh, have a you'd like we will cast the person we want, no, no matter what. But I think there's no doubt that someone with a bit of a profile attached to a project certainly helps. Yeah. not saying for a moment we picked Melanie because she was a name. We picked Melanie because she was perfect for the part. Of um, course. Um, she is, she did a, a fantastic job as people will see when they, when they watch the film. But, um, yeah, um, I, I think you can't go into this as, as a sort of a new entrant into the industry thinking, thinking, you know, the way it's going to work, you know, the way you want to do it, you know, you can control that with your script. That's, that's fine. You can, you know, present your script and you can stand by that. And indeed, some people who read our script, you know, really liked it. And some people thought it wasn't for them, which is absolutely fine. But once you get past that and you get into a pre-production process, then I think you have to be guided by what, by what people expect to happen in, in, in the film industry. Um, I, I think it's sort of, I think arrogant and slightly misguided if you go in there and think, well, we're going to do everything as we want to do it. I think mm. that's not going to get you very far. I think you've got to be pragmatic and, uh, and, and compromise at times. What was, what was some of the most sort of interesting and beneficial to the film sort of compromises you come, you come up against that, that you, know, you, you, you saw through and actually you could see, you can, you can now see that it was, uh, it was to the benefit of the movie? Um... I think we compromised on the the, the size of the crew. I mm-hmm. think we had fewer crew than than perhaps would be standard on a production. Um, okay. We took good advice on equipment. Um, we had a a good DP who knew his stuff, and we knew we could shoot it without very much um, artificial lighting. For example, you know all of the all of the outside all the exteriors none of that or very very little of that is 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 aided by by lighting so that costs cuts your costs immediately <laughs> and yeah, that proves the need for your for your gaffers and your, your technicians to get everything set up and it makes the whole the whole day quicker so i think you know we we proved that we could shoot this film with a with a relatively small crew so that was a compromise that you know we we were it was it was good to uh, discover and the other big compromise i think is that in terms of all the production work that went with it. I mean, Jimmy and I have been working together for about four or five years as as filmmakers, making shorts and various things before building up to this project. And we always thought we'd need a kind of third person in the team, the producer role. So, uh, you know, I could write, Jimmy could direct, or vice versa. We'd need that third person to do all the, uh, all the kind of phone calling or the emailing, all the stuff that goes with it. But after looking and, and speaking to some people, we, we took a decision, well, you know what, as long as we can, we're going to do this ourselves. And, uh, you know, it's been, it's been time-consuming and it's been very, very hard work. But, you know, we, we've managed to produce this film on a day-to-day basis between ourselves as writers and directors. And that's, that's a source of great pride for us. And mm. also, 
also great confidence, you know, for the future that we we managed to get to this stage, you know, with our own with our own resources. So, I'm not saying that producers can't be very helpful. Of course, they can. They can be, you know, integral to to getting a film uh, to uh, to sort of production stage. But but that compromise for us felt one that we you know we didn't need to make. We could we could take it on ourselves, and and thus far it's it's proved to be successful. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix. Just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. And how, how do you how do you move between sort of the writer's hat and the director's hat? Because obviously there is, you know, there is the imagination and what you put yeah. on the page. And obviously now you're telling me also with the production, the producers that's going, yeah. you've, you've written 50 elephants come over the hill. Where are we going to get 50 elephants? From? <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. you know, so, and then as a director, what, what, how do you balance the demands of, you know, what you want to see on screen and what you want to well, it, script and stuff? It seems to work really well between Jimmy and myself. I mean, we are credited on the film as writer and directors together. Mm. In reality, I'm the main writer and he's the main director. Ah, okay. So, in terms of a script writing project, I will I will write for a day, and then Jimmy will script edit overnight, and I'll and I will you know work those into into the next day's work. And on set, it became very clear quite quickly we didn't need two people um, trying to direct. Um, it just slowed everything down. Um, so between setups, Jimmy and I would discuss things, and we'd we'd have ideas. Everything was storyboarded together. But essentially, he's the director on set. Right. And I, I'm there, just sort of agreeing with him and uh, hanging around in in the corner like the writer, with not, you know, as the writer, not not much to do. But he, he, you know, I tr- we trust each other. I think that's really important. You know, we we trust each other um, in the decisions that we make. We support each other. As I say, I couldn't finish a script without Jimmy's input, and he couldn't probably direct the film without my input. But actually, those roles do do kind of break down, um, you know, to those to those two elements pretty well, and that, it seems to work for us. No, it seems like a very good sort of professional understanding of what needs to be done to make a movie, rather than this is my job, this is your job. Yeah, um, you know, I think we both have, the team works because we have complementary skills. My background is in writing much more than it is directing, and his and his vice versa. So you know, we know which we know what the strengths of the other one is. Mm. So we're able to sort of get the best out of out of both of us. Now, when you were looking at those storyboards and. Um, what you were anticipating to shoot? What what in the pre-production stage seemed to be the most challenging, and and, and how did you overcome that? Um, the challenge in sort of the visual storytelling. I mean, we were there's a real danger in when you get outside that everything goes out out of the window um, in terms of your planning and your preparation. Okay. Interiors you can control, and of all the stuff that was storyboarded. The interiors were storyboarded in the in the most detail, and and if you compare the storyboards to the final film, you'd see it matches it pretty much shot for shot. Okay. And we were in sort of a school, and we were in a house, and, and various things, and then the, the house that they end up in later on in the film that was all very much fixed. When you get outside um, on a low budget film um, in a popular tourist area in the summer, yeah, things tend to go out of the window in terms of your planning. Um, we had to start very early in the day. Um, you know, we were up at four. We were make up by six because the areas we were shooting in just got really busy, um, and we had some people on the crew doing crowd management, but not many. And just you know, these these locations we shot in are some of the most popular tourist destinations in the country. 
So, you know, you can have all the storyboards in the world, but you may need to move 20 metres to your right suddenly because someone's arrived with a rubber ring and an inflatable boat or whatever, or there's loads of kids playing in the sea and the story's meant to be set in term time when you're in the background, you've got all these kids screaming and splashing in the water having fun. Mm. So that kind of thing um, really changed things sort of... We had the storyboards, we knew, we knew what we wanted to achieve, but the specifics of what we wanted to achieve, we were far less able to control them outside than, than when we were inside. They made it a bit fun and slightly kind of, you know, guerrilla filmmaking in, in, in a sense, but yeah. um, it's just control of your environment. And you, you need a massive, a massive shoot, a massive crew to be able to control those spaces. So the combination of... Uh, people in high-vis jackets and walkie-talkies, and that was a revelation that um, that most people in the world will do what they're told by someone wearing a high-vis vest and walkie-talkie. That was very useful. And also getting up very, very early before anyone else was there. You know, and quite often we'd finish shooting by about 11, you know, midday, and um, because the places we were in just got, got too busy. So so for all the planning you do, um, when, you're, when you're outside, things can, can change very, very quickly. Yeah, no, I, mean, I had a similar story recently with uh, a guy shooting up in the Highlands, and it was that idea of because if you picture a place being quiet, because compared to London or Leeds or Manchester, these places are quiet. Yeah. But actually, when you're shooting a film, one person talking on a mobile phone is going to annoy the hell out of what you're trying to do, isn't it? Exactly. Yes. <coughs> and we had that. Oh right. <laughs> and and also, yeah, the most sort of quoted example from the shoot was. Uh, there's a scene, without giving too much away, but there's a very emotional scene uh, on the beach between the two of them. And, uh, you know, it's pretty exposing for actors, you know, to, to give that level of emotional intensity anyway. Yeah. And at one point, they were right in the middle of this, and then, you know, a, a bloke walks by, by behind them, you know, in shot, carrying a massive yellow inflatable boat, <laughs> just, just looking straight at the camera, smiling with a massive inflatable boat on his shoulder. So it was like, well, <laughs> cut. You know, it was moments like that where you had to reset because of things totally beyond your control were, um, yeah, slightly frustrating. And also, you know, actors uh, can only give a certain amount for, for a certain amount of time. And when you're asking, as we did, our actors to perform with real power and, you know, quite upsetting emotion, it's, it's quite tough to reset because someone's walked past with a boat but there we go that's the fun of shooting outside indeed indeed so if we could boil it down boil it down maybe to one or two sort of lessons learned that you could pass on to people from the experience of shooting high tide what would what, what would they be okay lesson one uh, get your script right the script is this is it's often said but the script very much is is the start of the process Mm. And particularly if you're going in as newcomers, you know, that is the thing that you'll be judged on, first of all, is the quality of the writing. So don't rush it, get it right, get a, get a small team of people you trust to give you honest feedback. You know, we drafted High Tide many times and it was seen by many people before it was shown to anyone within the industry. So spend time getting the writing right. That's absolutely vital. Um, then I would say get a casting director on board as early as you can and there are casting directors I mean there, there are dozens you can look up on on Google or, or whatever but you know there are some who are starting out in the industry um, who are probably worth approaching 
our casting director, Bryony, had done a lot of TV work, but only done a couple of feature films. So she was interested in sort of expanding her career in that direction. Right. Um, so she was established, she had contacts, but she was wanting to get more into film. So that kind of worked very well for us. She was happy to, uh, she was happy to, to take on the job initially for a relatively small fee. So that was, that was welcome. Um, but as I said earlier, um, you know, her involvement in the project really did change everything. It started, you know, it, it went from being, well, can we get this done to suddenly, oh, well, this, this actually is possible. So casting directors, I think, are worth, you know, love them and, and, and send them regular emails to tell them how great they are. And uh, that's a really good thing. Um, and then I think thirdly is, is if you're on a limited budget, and you are trying to put a crew together of, of you know, willing volunteers or, or, or people who are willing to help out. I would still get the budget together to pay the key roles properly. I mean, on, on high tide, you know, in, in terms of sort of industry uh, expectations, we were paying minimum wage, but we made a bit of provision in the budget to pay the, the DP and the, the chief sound recordist, and then in post-production, the editor and things. So those those key technical roles, yes. even if you've spent five years making short films and think you know what you're doing, I don't think you do. I think when you get out <laughs> you know, with a, with, a, with a cast of professional actors um, into a location that you've spent time arranging, you may have paid for, you don't want to be making mistakes, and nor are you going to be able to afford to get back to the end of the day, watch the rushes and go, oh, you know what? <laughs> the mic wasn't on or it's not in focus or just basic stuff like that. So even on a limited budget, find the money to pay those key technical people properly and uh, your film will benefit immensely as a result. Was of interest, was you able to um, get all your um, dialogue recorded sort of on the shot, as it were? You, were, you weren't, didn't have to re-record anything? Uh, about 90% of it is... is <coughs> Is is live, yeah, Brilliant. As, as was, yeah. There's a bit of ADR in a couple of the scenes, um, you know, and again, aeroplanes going over, and also being by the sea, you know, posing these challenges in terms of sound. But uh, our sound department were very good. I mean, obviously, the locations were set before we went into the shoot, so there was a lot of prep done about how we how we capture the dialogue properly in in these locations. So, yeah, around about ninety percent of it is is as live. Yeah, because I think I think one of the one of the key things that that I think helps the movie is is the silence and therefore the ambience of the place you're in. So yeah. when when we can hear the sea and 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 feel you know therefore feel the built environment as well as see it. Yeah, I think that really helps with what's go well. It helps balance what's going on between the two main characters. I think so. Yeah, and a lot of that was wild track. You know, that's recorded separately, so the sound mm. scene would go out. You know, between takes or even at the end of, of the day, course, yeah, yeah, couple of couple of hours out, and uh, you know, again in terms of advice, you know, sound is more important than vision. I think an audience will forgive visual errors far more readily than they'll forgive audio errors. Without um, a doubt, without a doubt. Uh, you know the the amount of time that's gone into to post production sound mixing has been has been enormous, but um, it, it's worth every second. It's it really what what makes it you know spend that right. Now, bizarrely, I I think only because I, I recognise the name Matt Hardin, your composer. Yeah, I don't, I think I've interviewed him in, in in the past life. Not not as in like there's some doppelganger, but presumably <laughs> Matt used to be Matt was a, a musician making music and stuff. I interviewed him for a magazine. God, maybe yeah. maybe 
10, 15 years ago. Yeah, Matt Harding's been making music for well, well over a decade and yeah. leasing albums. Um, yeah. yeah, well, maybe it's the same guy then, because I did an I did interview with him for a magazine called Flux in Manchester. Yeah, and I was as the credits were rolling, I was like, "Geez!" And and it makes sense because I mean, listen, go when I when I then in hindsight could think back what the music was. It's very much his. It's that, it, and that's the, again another good thing about the movie that I liked was there was a light of touch. Yeah, because there could I mean, there's when when you're dealing in sort of big emotions, there's, there's a there can be a temptation. You see it a lot in movies where people go, "Now's the bit you're meant to be upset. Now's the bit you're meant to be angry at," and you're like. Just turn the music off, and I can, I can, I can understand yeah. what, when people are angry and upset. I mean, that's partly pragmatism. I mean, in the sense of not being able to afford an orchestra or a, mm. a proper, you know, a proper score like that. But also artistically, it just felt right. As you say, give, give. You know, Matt's music is really sparse. It, mm. It's, it's, it, uh, it's, it's subtle, and uh, and I think the movie really benefits for that. As you say, that lightness of touch. And uh, now we are really pleased to work with him. He's a great guy. He's, he's just the most super relaxed person you'll ever meet. And mm. uh, he just came on set for a couple of days and just seemed to just sort of sit and just listen and look. And then a couple of weeks later, his sort of first drafts of stuff were turning up. And they thought, well, this is, this is brilliant. It captures the feel of, of what we're trying to achieve perfectly. So, yeah, he's a, he's a great guy, a very talented guy. And we're, again, very lucky that uh, we're able to get him. Um, I mean, one particular one particular scene that stands out that I think was was a kind of, and it was towards the end of the movie where mother and son are having a conversation, but but a lot of the conversation is is broken up by silence. It's not a fast conversation, if you, if you get what I mean. They say a little, but yeah. a lot of what needs to be said is what they're not saying. Yeah, as it's going on, and I thought that was a really really I can't remember what I can't remember the exact scene, but I just remember. Watching it, feeling like, yeah, this is this is where we're getting to the nub of it, and this is this is this is real drama now. Yeah, two people. Your understanding as an audience, what's not being said right now, as yeah. much as you are hearing what they're telling us. Yeah. <clears throat> and how how did you how do you direct the uh, the 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 actors for that kind of scene where it's it's not about get arguably it's not about getting to the end of what you need to say, is it? Each time, it's more about trying to. Yeah. That was just really a case of, of of reassuring the actors that we weren't going to say cut at any at any point soon. It's take as long as you need. Um, I mean, both of them have enough experience to understand what what a scene requires, and with a bit of a chat beforehand, you know, they were they were properly prepped. But you know, the only real direction from us there was just don't rush. There is there is this can be as slow as you want it to be. Let let it let it just happen. Okay. Uh, you know. Um, the subtext obviously had been discussed before the cameras rolled, but I think you just need to trust your actors. Really, I mean, mm. you've chosen them, you 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 believe in them, and I think in a situation like that, it's 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 just right over to you. You know, we'll we'll be here, we'll film, it'll be recording, the sound will be on. So take your time, just just make it work, and uh, you know, it's those moments are, I guess, a little bit more theatrical, you know, than they are filmic in that mm. that. You know, you've got that intensity that you can create in a in a, in a kind of in a small theatre. You know, we were able with those sort of locations. The one you're talking about is just sort of a, a lane down uh, the, near the house where the, the previous scene takes place, and it was quite enclosed. There was there were trees over it, and it felt like we were sort of really kind of cordoned off from from reality. And it was just a, yeah, just a, a case of letting the actors 
do their thing and just say, we trust you here. You know, you, you, you've been with this process. We didn't film entirely sequentially, but that scene you're talking about was one of the last ones that we did. And, okay. and you know, this is the end of the journey. And it really didn't take a, a great deal of direction. Um, it was just, you know, just, just take your time. We're not going to rush you. Get it right. And, um, yeah, we're pleased with that scene particularly. It's, it's really strong. Now, like we said, we this this podcast likes to go out after your premiere. So let's remind people how and where they can see the movie. Right. Well, if you're in South Wales, it will be absolutely no problem to see the movie. Um, it's playing um, in View and Odeon in uh, Swansea and Cardiff. Um, it's playing a chapter in Cardiff um, on the 11th of March. Uh, there's a special Welsh BAFTA screening of the film hosted by Welsh BAFTA, or BAFTA Wales, as I think they're called, um, at chapter in Cardiff, and then it's running for a week then. It's in Port Talbot. Um, it's all over South Wales. Beyond that, it'll go to Bristol, and then we will, you know, we'll see how it does, and we'll expand it from there if we can. And then, you know, ultimately down the line, there'll be a DVD and on-demand release as well if people people can't catch it but um we have plans to get to london if if the budget stretches there so but that's going to depend on uh, on how well it does in its early release good man well look, we'll make sure you make sure you uh, keep keep Britflix in posted we'll we'll certainly post that news up when you get when you get more details thank you very much thank you right then well one last question we'd like to ask everybody yep. is um to recommend as a british film yep. that that you either feel over the midst of time has become grossly underrated and deserves more kudos, or indeed a more recent film that, in the glut of films that we get these days, has been been missed by many people and could do with being revisited. I'm going to recommend. I don't know whether it's underrated, but it's often forgotten because it's in black and white and it was made in in the 40s. Um, I'm going to rec- and also I'm I'm talking to you from Ealing, and this is a uh, very much one of the uh, the uh, the classic Ealing comedies of, of mm-hmm. the 40s. Please, audience, watch Kind Hearts and Coronets. Um, <laughs> it's um, it's brilliant. It's almost the perfect piece of storytelling. Um, not only, you know, Alec Guinness plays all the different characters uh, that get murdered throughout the film, but uh, its its ending is is a moment of uh, of script writing brilliance. So you know, Robert Hammer's Kind Hearts and Coronets, nineteen forty nine, Ealing Studios. Um, I'm sure many people have seen it because it's a an absolute classic. But uh, but if you haven't, I urge anyone to watch it. It's it's a masterpiece and also brilliantly, brilliantly funny, hugely darkly funny. It's a it's a comedy about murder. So uh, yeah, I love it, and everyone should watch it. Well, you're the, you're the second guest to recommend it. So oh dear, that's nothing's original. I no, 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 that's good. No, it's, that's I don't, I don't mind at all. I think it's I think it's interesting when we get when we get repeat recommendations from people because clearly these films. Are, are are important to people, and for yeah. some people, they may not have heard of them. You know, there are so, there is so much media out there these days. Yeah. Something that you know, as a film person, you might well think, God, everybody knows this. It's not necessarily true. So, thank you for that. Pleasure. And thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Good luck with the movie. Thank you very much. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix. Just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.